News. 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 New York City. F-A-Q. Hi, my name is Alex Brooklyn. I'm the producer of FAQ NYC. I'm here today with Ozzy Pabra, Harry Siegel, Professor Christina Greer, and our special guest, Rebecca Lewis from City and State. We tried to make a concise voter's guide that was quick, easy, and digestible. We wanted to make one both for people who knew a lot about politics and new voters who are super charged up and want to get involved. Honestly, we got super in the weeds at times and kind of flailed explaining everything all at once and trying to give people backstory. It was a lot. Voting is complicated. Democracy is not on autopilot. Making something quick and easy? We found out it's actually dirty and messy. So the FAQ team presents the Dirty Messy Voter Guide for New York. Enjoy the Dirty Messy. So today we're talking about two kinds of races, state legislative races and congressional races. The state legislative races will affect the kind of policies and politics going forward that New York will have, as diverse and different as upstate and downstate are. The congressional races are New York's representatives that then will go to D.C. and affect change on a national level. So here's what could change in Albany. Congestion pricing, speed cameras, higher taxes on the rich, better funding for mass transit, licenses for undocumented residents, better tasting pizza, and the millionaire's tax. We see you, Bill de Blasio. If Democrats take over the House in Washington, D.C., you could start seeing more aggressive House hearings on all the things that Donald Trump doesn't like to talk about. Russia, 2016, all of his business practices, his inheritance, What was really the secret ingredient in Trump vodka? The family separation policy at the southern border. How did the federal government lose track of children and their parents and how were they not able to reunite them? And remember how much fun those Benghazi hearings were for Hillary Clinton? Imagine those hearings going the other way. So here's Ms. Lewis to talk about both kinds of races with us and explaining a little bit more about all the different parties on New York's excessively complicated ballots. So when you head in to vote in November, you'll probably notice that a lot of the names show up a couple times on the ballot, you know, not just once, not just twice, sometimes three times. So you might be thinking, oh, I want to vote for the Democrat or I want to vote for the Republican. But you notice that uh, their their names might be there also under the conservative party line or the working families party line or the reform party line. And it can get a little confusing in the end. For you as a voter, it really doesn't matter which line you vote for them on. A vote for that person is a vote for that person. But for the party, it does matter. Uh, In the gubernatorial race, when you're voting for governor, uh, a party needs to get 50,000 votes to stay a party. If they don't get 50,000 votes, they don't get to automatically be on the ballot. They don't get to have their committees. They don't get to have the same amount of money. So for the parties on the ballot your vote really matters. So for, let's say, the Working Families Party, who recently endorsed Andrew Cuomo, he will now appear. (laughs) We're not heckling you. We're just coughing conveniently. Rebecca's like, what is this podcast? (laughs) It's too late to back out now, Rebecca. Uh, Andrew Cuomo, who was recently endorsed by the Working Families Party (coughs) will appear on their ballot line and provided he gets 50,000 votes on that line, 
the Working Families Party will continue to survive. If not, you will become, let's say, like the Libertarian Party. There is no official Libertarian Party in New York State. They are actually trying to become an official party through Larry Sharp. But first, they need to petition and say, I want to be on the ballot as an independent, as a Libertarian. So Larry Sharp gets to be on the ballot. He gets to say he's a Libertarian. If he gets 50,000 votes, boom, the Libertarian Party exists in New York State, and they get to raise money, and Larry Sharp gets to continue running as a bona fide Libertarian. If not, well, the Libertarian Party is going to have to do the same thing over and over and over again. Going out, getting petition signatures to say, I want this person to be an independent on the ballot, and then fail to get 50,000 votes. Speaking of independence, is there an independent party, and is it the same thing? It is not. Uh, in New York State, you're either a reg- registered with a party or you are blank, non-registered. You're registered to vote but not affiliated with a party. We do, though, have an independence party, which can get confusing. It's kind of signified the initials IND, which you might think independent, but it's not. The independence party, you know, it's kind of known for making deals with Cuomo. He, they consistently cross-endorse him. They have made deals with the now defunct Independent, Independent Democratic, Democratic Conference. Conference. They kind of shared their party committee. They kind of shared their funding and they would always cross-endorse and they would appear on their line. So an independence vote is not the same as voting for an independent. There's a party that Andrew Cuomo may have killed that had another very confusing name, if anyone remembers. The Liberal Party? Yeah. Andrew Cuomo ran for governor against Carl McCall, and he didn't want to wait his turn, and it didn't go very well at all, and it looked like it was going to be the end of his political career. Anyways, the Liberal Party, which was quite conservative at that point, um, all these leaders of it were involved in big Giuliani scandals, and it existed, and then it stopped existing because it didn't get its 50,000 votes because Andrew Cuomo kept its line when he gave up at the 11th hour, his Democratic primary run against Carl McCall. So that was like sort of the warning, the accidental warning to the other parties. Like if this stuff goes the wrong way, you can lose your line. And it makes almost no difference, you know, if you're voting. Like if you're one of Andrew Cuomo, you're one of Andrew Cuomo. These names can be very confusing. People like to identify as being independent, E-N-T, the last a couple of letters. I'm an independent. Nobody tells me what to do. Bloomberg. Bloomberg always right. got the independence party line by giving the cultists, right. you know, lots of money and then said, you know, I'm, I'm running, I'm running as a Republican to dodge the primary, but I'm an independent. Right. right. Valuable but, to him. but he would do that to confuse people. Yeah. Rebecca Lewis. Rebecca Lewis. Rebecca Lewis. In November, you know, everyone's thinking about the congressional races. They're thinking about the governor's race, but there's also a really important, well, a series of important races are going to be going on, and that's the state legislative races. You got the state Senate, which continues to be held on by Republicans by a very, very slim margin, a one-vote margin. The Assembly, the other chamber of New- in New York State, is held by Democrats. The governorship is held by a Democrat. And Democrats consistently like to say, we're going to flip the state Senate, we're going to regain control of the state Senate, and this year, uh, they just might do it. So uh, with 63 Senate seats, you know, not every single one is going to be competitive. We do have some sure things. Most of the Democrats in New York City are going to get reelected or, you know, elected for the first time if they want a primary. Uh, People like Jessica Ramos, uh, people like Julia Salazar, uh, people like uh, uh, Robert Jackson, they're all their their elections were in the primary uh, primarily. 
then you have some Republicans, people like uh, Majority Leader John Flanagan is, you know, expected to win re-election. But there are about, say, about a dozen seats that are in play. Uh, so that's really what Democrats are going after. They're going after some of the swing districts on Long Island and in the Hudson Valley. And that's really where uh, control of the state Senate is going to play out. Geographically, where are these contests primarily taking place? Uh, a lot of them are playing out in the suburbs, not necessarily like uh, North Country all the way up north where it's rural. Uh, you have them playing out in like the Hudson Valley and the suburbs there. You have a uh, race playing out near Syracuse in central New York. So, you know, they're they're pretty geographically diverse. The general areas, Long Island and Hudson Valley, if you wanted to kind of condense it down. Why are those contests happening there? Those kind of contests, it's they're, it's suburban. They're, they're sort of their own group of voters. They're not really defined by Republican or Democrat ideologies alone. You'll see a lot of times Republicans use a playbook of you don't want to let the New York City Democrats pass things that will affect you in the suburbs. We saw that in uh, in 2010, the Democrats had a very, very brief stint of control of the state Senate. They passed the MTA payroll tax, and the suburbs were very unhappy about that, immediately voted out two Democrats on Long Island and returned control to the state Senate. So that's usually what the playbook is for Republicans. It's New York City versus suburbs. And the question now is, can the Democrats overcome the stigma of being New York City Democrats as someone who can adequately represent suburban interests. So you mentioned Republicans in the past voting against, say, New York City interests. But recently, Cuomo just met with eight uh, Long Island or suburban state Senate Democratic candidates and essentially had them pledge their loyalty to him. But also they discussed making sure that um, the demands from New York City, you know, residents and lawmakers should pay their fair share for the MTA. So can you walk us through the strategy of a Democratic governor caucusing with other Democratic state senators, just those who are outside of the five boroughs and what that means for those of us who live in New York City. Yeah, it's kind of a it's it's a tricky line to walk for Cuomo. Uh, at one in 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 one in one point he wants to unify Democrats. The other point there is sort of this divide between the suburbs and the city, and it's also just part of his own personal game plan. This is his go to complaint about New York City. It's his go to complaint with Mayor De Blasio. He likes to say that New York City doesn't pay its its quote unquote fair share for the MTA, uh, without really explaining what what exactly that means. He didn't explain what that means in that uh, that sort of pact he had the Democrats, those Democratic candidates sign either. But it's really, it's something that, you know, the suburbs feel that they're subsidizing New York City. That's what happened with the MTA payroll tax. They feel like they're paying an unfair amount of money for a service that they're not necessarily getting. So even though you have suburbs in like Westchester in in on Long Island, they do get served by the MTA. They think of it more so of like the subways and the buses, and that's where the majority of that funding goes. And there are entire neighborhoods in the suburbs who don't get served by the MTA. So they think that, you know, if it's a New York City problem, New York City should pay for it. And that's something that a lot of the suburban Democrats think about. And considering the fact that that's how Democrats lost their control in 2010, you know, and, and one one part, it's smart of Cuomo to say, you know, these Democrats pledge to represent your suburban interests, but at the same time, it might be pitting the Democrats against each other when they really need a message of unity. It, it's a very tricky, it's a very tricky uh, di- dichotomy because you know, as much as you need you need unity, the state is not 
a monolith. Different areas have different needs, and sometimes those needs are not always the same, even if you're in the same party. But when you get further away into more rural areas, um, north of Albany, maybe into Syracuse and the places in between, the further are, the further away you are, the less likely you feel like you should be contributing to something that goes towards New York City or that goes towards this sort of greater good. And if Cuomo is targeting voters located in the Mid-Hudson Valley, like you said, or on Long Island, you know, places where people might own a home, might not have mass transit, have cars, they don't feel like New York City is a scary place, but that they shouldn't be paying for it out of their own wallet. You can sort of see where these factions start lining up outside of the traditional Democrat and Republican. And, you know, it, it's it's hard to say because a lot of what the Democrats are talking about getting done, it's not specific to any one region. Uh, so, you know, passing the Reproductive Health Act, that's not specific to any one region. The single-payer health care is not specific to any one region. Uh, neither is voting and democracy reform that they're talking about. You know, a lot of it, I think, comes down to, you know, this sort of scare tactic um, that, you know, having a Democratic majority in the state Senate is going to be bad for the suburbs. That's why Republicans for so long have been able to to uh, maintain control. To find out if you can help tip Albany blue or keep the state Senate red for whatever reason, Google your address, find out your district. Once you find out your district, you can find out your state senator. Then you can see if you agree with that person and either vote for them or vote for their opponent. When you do start to look up their policies, try to go for credible sources. And don't just believe everything you read on some sort of Russian Facebook page trying to imitate a Black Lives Matter group. This is a PSA from your producer at FAQ NYC. Ding! The more you find out. I'm sure that our listeners are more familiar with the federal, the nationwide efforts to flip the House back to Democrat. And, you know, a bunch of those races are taking place in New York that are being targeted by uh, the National Democrats to flip those seats. So we've got uh, in District 22, uh, Claudia Tenney, uh, running against uh, Assemblyman Anthony Brindisi. That's been considered by a lot of the forecasters a toss-up. You know, she's very, very Trumpian. You know, Anthony Brindisi, who's running against her, has denounced Nancy Pelosi. He's got an A rating from the NRA, which might work for that district. And he's the Democrat. He is the Democrat. So Democrats are going to have to suck it up and vote for a Democrat with an A rating in order to get rid of a a Republican. He's also been endorsed by Giffords, the gun safety group. I believe other gun safety groups have endorsed him as well. He's he's much more of the uh, common sense gun rights, but he's still an upstate Democrat who's got an A rating from the NRA. So this reminds me of sort of the old school kind of Kirsten Gillibrand, Kathy Hochul type of Democrat where, you know, you can be a big D Democrat, but also have the NRA sort of like you at a certain point of time. You know, it's, it's, it's all about geography. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if you live in, a, in, in an area that likes their guns, you got to have some positions that they can agree on. And Anthony Brindisi is one of them. Uh, you know, despite that, he's been endorsed by the DCCC. He's getting support from the National Democrats. They recognize that he's a potential pickup. So, you know, they're willing to say that, you know, he might not have all the progressive bona fides of a New York City Democrat, but he's still a Democrat. He's still running a fairly progressive campaign, just in a different part of the state. 
Right. And not all Democrats are progressives. So we have to recognize and respect geography. And then uh, some other races, uh, actually one in New York City, uh, the lone Republican in New York City uh, on Staten Island, uh, Dan Donovan. He fended off a uh, challenge in the primary from his predecessor, Michael Grimm, who wanted to have a comeback after going to jail. Uh, that didn't work out prison. for him. Prison, yes. After going to prison. Prison. And, and it wasn't for threatening to throw a reporter off the balcony that sent no. him to prison. It was something else. Something else. Completely unrelated, nonviolent. Taxes. Taxes. On a restaurant he ran before getting elected. Uh, he served some time, got back out, thought, hey, Donovan's done a good job keeping my seat warm. I want it back. Uh, voters decided otherwise. And now Donovan is facing off against uh, veteran Max Rose. In that seat, which he has been, he's a very charismatic guy. You know, you you like to sit down and chat with him. Uh, I know someone who, for a story, uh, went for an interview. He said, hey, let's go to Ralph's. They got some Italian ices and sat down on the curb for the interview. He's very friendly guy, very approachable. He's raised a lot of money. So, you know, that's another race to watch. Is he going to win? It's harder to say. That that district is, uh, Staten Island's very Trumpy. So the other race that that's a toss up that people are watching that will help determine whether Democrats take the House is incumbent John Faso, a Republican versus Antonio Delgado. Uh, yes. Uh, you know, if you're a Democrat, he is the lawyer and Rhodes Scholar, uh, Antonio Delgado. If you're a Republican, he is the former New York City rapper, uh, A.D. The Voice. And, and where is this race taking place? Hudson Valley-ish, up, upstate from the Bronx. Uh, so Antonio Delgado, uh, he is a lawyer and a Rhodes Scholar. He's running. Uh, he ran in a crowded primary uh, to get the Democratic nomination. He's gotten national support. He's, you know, uh, getting a lot of attention, not necessarily because of something that he's done, but because of what the Republicans have done. They've run uh, a number of different attack ads against him now that have been criticized as being racist and racially tinged. Um, certainly controversial, where they bring up his past as a rapper, they play lyrics, uh, lyrics from his songs, they, it's very kind of dark, and they show him in hoodies and questioning his American values. And, you know, a lot of people are seeing this as... Racist? Racist. <laughs> I'm seeing it as racist. How about that? I mean, I think it's so fascinating because you have someone who's Harvard-educated, Rhodes Scholar, and, you know, obviously those are qualifications that a lot of politicians have, and people get gaga over it. But the explicit nature of the negative attack ads saying, you know, is this the type of man you want around your family, or the type of misogynistic lyrics that he's, you know, espousing, to me, harkens back to this very old trope of, like, the big black man coming into your home trying to steal your wife and your daughter. Big city, big city rapper. Rapper Antonio Delgado. Delgado. You've heard Antonio Delgado's extreme and offensive raps. Now Delgado admits he'd bring the same ideals to Congress, saying, listen to the content of the lyrics. My mission is clear. Profanity, misogyny, disturbingly radical. Attacking our democracy, mocking our values, Delgado's mission is clear. He can't be our voice in Congress. Congressional Leadership Fund is responsible for the content of this advertising. And I just think it's so fascinating that in 2018, it still works. 
to a certain extent. And I'm curious to see if it'll work on November 6th in the era of Trump, where he uses, you know, this kind of anti-black racism constantly in the narrative. And a lot of Republicans and far too many Republicans are picking up on it and using it in their own uh, literature. Big city politicians are crushing upstate families. Just like Governor Cuomo and Nancy Pelosi, big city rapper Antonio Delgado supports their radical government takeover of health care. Radical government takeover. Radical government takeover. Radical government takeover. Big city rapper. Rapper Antonio Delgado. John Faso doesn't think any of this stuff. Um, he has whatever polling, and it's what Trump is saying and Steve Bannon is saying that, that this is the only way that he thinks he's going to win. Um, you know, he's, he's uh, you know, he's a former assemblyman, a former lobbyist, like a very smart, reasonable guy who's in this competitive district and is running against a uh, running against a black guy and is saying, is this what we think the Hudson Valley looks like? And that's straight up his appeal. So this is a really interesting moment in that you're seeing candidates in these competitive races, Republicans who, uh, you know, are saying, OK. I guess this is the path for, to victory, and I'm going to campaign this way now, hope I can win, and see what happens later. So it's, it's really appalling, and it's striking. There are, there are candidates. Maybe they don't know better. But I think now we're getting into a philosophical, theoretical question, right? Because it's like, you say he knows better, yet he's not doing better. So what's the point? You he, know, always, like- he always did better, and he decided to stop doing better and to actively reverse course to win this election and say, do, do, do you really want to vote for the rapidly black guy? Right. And interestingly, though, is actually, you know, none of these ads were funded by him. They were funded by uh, national Republican groups. So he's just kind of playing along with it. Like Mm -hmm. he's he's taking the path of least resistance. Uh, He's embraced Trump. He's he's avoided every Trump dodge. And he's talked about the mob, which is the big thing. And especially right after Kavanaugh, it's like, do we want the, the, the Antifa people and the weirdos in the street? The the Republican closing appeal nationally is there is a mob. There is a Democratic mob, and it's scary. It's literally in the streets, and it's going to take things from you. And he's playing into that, and he's leaning into Trump. And again, this is like a moderate New York guy who who his entire career, and I am talking directly to you, John, and and I guess you may be listening, indicates that you know better than to lean into this sort of race. Also, both of them have gotten a lot of -of out-of-state money in interesting ways because there are only so many competitive races. The control of the House is at stake. The party that controls the White House, the Senate, and the House of Representatives— thinks that two years into this sort of sweeping control of D.C., that the way to win a swing district is by attacking the opponent rather than saying, look what we've accomplished, look what I've accomplished. The fact that they go on the offense and they have to identify a quote-unquote other and this quote-unquote mob of people that are coming after you, if they think that's the winning strategy, that should tell you something about what they've been able to accomplish and or, how not. They, or, or not, or how they've been able to accomplish it. Imagine if a Democratic mayor was running for re-election solely by saying, I'm under attack, look at these other people. But Ozzy, I think it's deeper than that because the whole Trumpian and now Republican philosophy is to be a victim. And the victimhood is white manhood. So what Trump and Faso and all the other and Kavanaugh and all the other electeds who were in D.C. are saying, saying, poor us, our country's changing. These, you know, liberal women, liberal loose women, right? The Negroes are coming to get us. 
a.k.a. Delgado. The Latinos are taking over. Like, that is the victimhood mentality that Trump espouses and Faso's following along with. So it's like they want to be the victim and the hero simultaneously. But in the election season, now it's just, you know, we have to protect what we have because the boogeyman, a.k.a. Delgado, is coming to take everything away from you and your wife and your child, right? And so I think this is such an old racist trope that we see in Trump every day. But now we're seeing, as Harry calls these well-intentioned, you know, sort of, you know, Republicans who know better, but they clearly aren't doing better. And to me, if in this particular political moment, you will sell your soul to get into the Trump boat, which means you are Trump then. Like we're in a moment now, if you're going to call it the mob of the Democrats who are actually pushing for equality, then what is the point of you, John Faso? Then just say, I'm Trump. I want to be a racist. I want to be a misogynist. I want to basically scare white women and white men into voting for me, who are independents or weak-leaning Democrats and definitely Republicans, because I'm afraid that this black man will go to Congress. As Rebecca is stressing, this is him allowing people right around him to do that, which is at least a nominal difference. Um, I know Ozzy's got a a closing thought here. I just want to say tune in next week when we solve the problems with American politics. <laughs> My, My question- patience is, is thin for people like Faso. It's too many Fasos like that. You know, you take someone like Heidi Huncap, right, who's just like, listen, I might lose my seat in, in for the North, Car- North Dakota Senate race, but at least I'm going to lose it with dignity and sticking up for women. And I'm going to explain to you why I voted for Gorsuch and why I didn't vote for Kavanaugh, right? You have far too many Republicans who hem and haw and wring their hands, a.k.a. Jeff Flake, I'm looking at you. In this particular moment, we have to ask our elected officials, what are you doing for us and the future of small-D democratic politics and democracy writ large? If you're going to cast your lot with Trump and racist, misogynist, anti-Semitic language, then you actually don't deserve to be a public servant and represent me or anyone else in your district. All of these very small races and cases then become the handle in which you're figuring out these larger issues. So we get to this November, and there's a tremendous amount at stake. And part of what's confusing this is we just had these primaries where the the progressives and the most righteous Democrats and new voting ones were the most important people. And that's not necessarily the position we're in come November. It's actually a, a, a wide open question. This this election cycle, in many ways, is a referendum on Trump. Uh, you know, there's a lot of this progressive energy that came up out of Trump. And so the local issues will come up there. You know, you can't win and win the election just by saying I'm against Trump. I'm against Trump. I'm against Trump. But it all comes back to him. And so, you know, at the end of the day, the local issues will play a role. They'll play a role in when you go knocking on doors and saying what what you're about, what issues you care about, what you're going to do for the people. But what's really driving people to the polls in in both the congressional and the state senate race is that it really comes down to are you for Trump or are you against Trump? I think it's also we have to recognize we're asking them to turn out to vote, but we need to give them candidates to actually vote for, right? I think the Kavanaugh hearings really showed us that, you know, on both sides, Democrats and Republicans, we've got a lot of dinosaurs that are just not inspiring a lot of young people to want to be a part of the political process. So this is what helps us explain the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, where you actually have someone who's a little bit closer in age to them, who's actually talking about issues, climate change, school loans, things like that, single-payer health care that they can wrap their minds around, as opposed to looking at someone, you know, like Grassley or Graham or 
Biden or Feinstein even, who represent, you know, a grandparents type generation. You know, a lot of these young candidates are actually hitting the pavement and doing some real retail grassroots campaigning to actually ask young people and new people for their vote, as opposed to just assuming that because they're registered to one party or the other, that they'll automatically just come out and vote for the same old, same old. And when they knock on those doors, they're going to find a reporter like Rebecca writing it all down. F-A-Q. This is producer Alex Brooklyn with a uh, special conversation that's a little out of the way. Uh, I wanted to have the gang kind of discuss the politics post-Kavanaugh. I think it's uh, kind of important to see how the landscape has changed, especially among young voters, uh, first-time voters, and Democrats leading up to the midterm election once Kavanaugh was confirmed. Kavanaugh was last weekend, and unfortunately, some of that ire and fervor has already burned out just a little bit. You know, it hasn't gone away, but... A month is a long time from now, and we know with this particular president and his shenanigans, antics, and just completely inappropriate behavior, he's so good at distracting us from so many real things, uh, we have to make sure that we stay vigilant. And remind people, it's like November 6th, I mean, drilling it in people's heads. Because we know that, you know, you can sit on the subway with your I Voted sticker on election day, you know, during a presidential election, and invariably there's someone who turns over to me and says, hey, what's the sticker for? Is today an election? I think geography matters because in certain places, I think Republicans are going to be emboldened and they will really go out and vote on the 6th because they're going to feel like uh, the system has worked for them and they're excited and they want to protect the win that they just got. I think Depending on where you live, if you're a Democrat, you may be motivated to just go out and make sure that you can burn out every Republican that you can, especially um, for some of these statewide races. What concerns me, quite honestly, is that, one, we have all of these draconian and confusing registration dates so that there might be people who are fired up but either have missed their registration date in their state or um, they just don't know it and, and they they won't be ready on the 6th. And then the other is, I do think that we're seeing so many small stories that aren't making it to the the mainstream media about people trying to register and having real difficulties. So, you know, we heard some stories coming out of Florida where the website is essentially crashed. Now, is that just because you have so many people who are excited? Do we have Russian interference? Do we have Republicans making sure that Democrats can't register? I'm not exactly sure, but I am worried about voter fraud, and not in the Republican sense of, you know, people sneaking off to the polls, but the ways in which um, um, that does worry me because the Republicans are very organized when it comes to these types of uh, voter disenfranchisement efforts. And we have to remember that we're still not voting under the full protection of the Voting Rights Act. And I, I get a little worried about November 6th, even with all of the ire that so many women feel, not all, but some women feel with this blatant disregard for our feelings and our stories in manifested in Canada. So you're worried that a lot of this uh, momentum of, you know, of women feeling disenfranchised, women and sexual assault victims feeling disenfranchised, that going then to register, again, they're going to get met with another form of, like another wall and another form where they feel like they can't be a part of the national conversation. These real institutional barriers that will exclude so many people who were inspired to sort of be a part of democracy. For me, um, 
a lot of it comes down to trying to show people that now that they feel like they have been completely excluded from the national conversation, as a lot of the young first-time voters feel like they have, that instead of the uh, the giving upness that co- sometimes can come with that, that participating in local politics really is the better, smarter way. I mean, for me, uh, things like you know, wanting Julia Salazar to be better vetted by the DSA and like really focusing in on that, you know, then to see someone like Kavanaugh be confirmed, it's kind of like, well, am am I really going to start going in on my own now over uh, like some incident that happened a million years ago where she may or may not have pretended to be someone calling a bank? Right. Well, I, what I remind my students of is, you know, the reason why local politics matters is because you look at some of these dinosaur senators who are up there, you know, slapping Kavanaugh on the back. Many of them started in their state house before they became a member of the House, and then they became a senator. So these state house jobs are stepping stones. You know, think about someone like the late, great Shirley Chisholm. She got her start in Albany before she became the first black woman to go to, uh, to go to Congress. So the state house matters to say nothing of. You take a state house like New York, and we have a budget of one hundred sixty-eight billion dollars, which you know, in some ways, is a, a bigger budget than certain countries out there. So the fact that the vast majority of Americans can't name their state legislator, can't name their state senator, can't name their representative in the house, and can barely name their U.S. senator or governor or lieutenant governor. That says something not just about the lack of civics in our country, but also the ways in which elected officials don't necessarily want you to know who they are, because then you can go to Albany, kick it, harass women, steal money. I mean, like, it's just a free-for-all sometimes. And so most people really only know the big show, the main ticket items, the Kavanaugh versus Ford, the Lindsey Graham versus... uh, you the know, world. The world, right. But but most people pay attention every four years. This is the whole confusion, is Democrats were already coming out to vote. Young women were looking at coming out to vote who don't generally admit terms or maybe weren't old enough. And now Republicans and other people who weren't as excited, who were sort of resigned, it's a mid-year, it's a midterm thing, our party's going to lose a bit, are highly motivated to come out to vote. Like, the way this Kavanaugh fight has played out, I think, is done tremendous damage to Democrats, both in the uh, the battle over Kavanaugh and how this is going to play out in November. I think there are a bunch of other factors that help Democrats, but I think this has been profoundly like uh, uh, counterproductive as a uh, political and electioneering exercise, which is part of what's happening. Um, I have to say I feel primarily um, bad that a bunch of women and men a bunch of sexual assault victims in good faith shared their stories in order to affect change. And as people often do who aren't necessarily political, sometimes get involved in the political process, did not quite understand how much them and their stories were going to be used in the typical Washington politicking. And that, to me, was one of the tragedies of the Kavanaugh situation is that a lot of people who are not generally involved in protest or anything like that really came out to share some personal shit and really probably uh, got a lot more in genuine usage out of their stories by politicians than a lot of people were expecting. I think it really, really disillusioned quite a few people this this uh, this past month. You know, to, and, and to pick and to pick up on what, what you're talking about. Um, the one 
one of the many takeaways from the Brett Kavanaugh episode to me is that politics right now is not about persuasion. New information that gets injected into the public consciousness that fills the information gaps that Christy was talking about when it's done in good faith by people of different stripes, like, like Alex, like what you're talking about. The recipients of it, the general public, it seems like what's happening is that people are so inundated with so much information that they don't always know how to understand that what it ends up doing is simply reaffirming their weekly held positions to make them stronger. If you were leaning towards Republicans and you saw uh, Dr. Ford testify and then Brett Kavanaugh argue against it. Cry. Cry. Um, you walk away perhaps not knowing who was right, who was wrong, but you end up sort of seeing a process go forward that that wasn't altered or changed by the new information that got brought in. And people that were disengaged, that don't know why the process works the way it does, just say, you know what, the whole system's broken. I'm not going to engage with it. I, the, the, the thing that I fear, uh, in addition to assault survivors not being taken seriously, is the idea that people who are not as well-informed about a democratic process dig in deeper despite the new information that they get and that the sides and that people aren't being persuaded, but that they're simply being calcified. Well, the example is people who were just like, uh, I mean, I guess I like Kavanaugh. I haven't really thought much about him. And then they see Dr. Ford. And then it's like, why is this woman trying to take him down after 36 years? And then they become Kavanaugh fans. Unfortunately, though, if we think about the framers intent, this was never supposed to be a job that is a Republican or a Democratic Supreme Court justice. They're supposed to be the nine sort of voices of the conscience of the country. But the ways in which our partisan politics have devolved is that we have unified government under the Republicans and you have a Republican president who has just co-opted the Republican Congress and now been able to push through a hyper-partisan justice, which was never supposed to be the intent of the Supreme Court in general. And so when that branch is weakened, we already have a corrupt kleptocracy in the executive branch and an abdicated congressional branch, this is where the trap doors that the framers put in the Constitution are weakened. And this is this is the real concern for me as the future of our democracy. Republicans who think that, 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 that Ford is telling the truth and aren't doing ridiculous third-person theories and, and lost memory theories think that this was all a political setup and that the other assault survivors who are coming out to tell their stories are actively participating in a political setup so that you don't have any sort of ordinary uh, trial with mechanisms for burden of proof and how those are supposed to be established. You have an accuser who wanted to remain anonymous, whose name is leaked out at the very end of a, a confirmation process and has put in herself like a, a very difficult position. You then have a pile on of first less uh, less alarming to many people who, who are actively thinking about this accusations in The New Yorker and then less believable and hugely alarming accusations. So now you have the, the, this series of things where there are people who think Kavanaugh probably did this really shitty thing when he was 19. And that this whole process has been deeply politicized from jump. And so when it's like, are, are women informed? There's this huge gender gap right now um, uh, between the parties and in relation to Trump. But there is, as we were talking about earlier in the episode, also the, this heightening of tensions and skepticism on all sides as to who's playing politics, how this started, and 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 how to take a and and what deserves to be taken seriously. So I, you know, I'm just talking to like Republican women who have been 
sexually assaulted and who don't take this stuff lightly and are not just like, uh, you know, let's defend all the men in our lives who think that this conversation is like is propagandistic, is creepy, is off. Um, and, and that all of this coming up right before an election um, with, with a Republican nominee is a sign that in the ways I was deeply concerned with about Trump before 2016, that like Democrats are, are just not willing to accept like the uh, validity of election results and, and, and power. And that's where this talk of this fear of the mob stuff is getting its, uh, its appeal and its attraction from. And I'm just scared having misread 2016 and how that election was going to go badly, that, that, that we're all sort of... Uh, overestimating the side that, that we are all on, uh, that women are all on, that assault victims Not all are women all on. are on this no, side. I, I know, I know. Um, I, 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 well, so, so, Harry, but here's the thing. I think this goes back to my FASO statement. Because what's really on trial here isn't necessarily Kavanaugh. It's white manhood. And the way that Donald Trump has framed, you know, this could be your husband, your brother, your, you know, your son, is to not just get white men on board, but it's to get white women on board. Like, that's the whole point. So the question isn't about Kavanaugh. It's can these women now take us down? And I I really do think that as Trump and Faso are fighting for the quote unquote soul of the nation and they interpret the soul of the nation as white manhood. And so you can't, quote unquote, have women sort of be able to take anything or inconvenience white men. And I think that's the subtext of this conversation because they quickly shifted it from women where it's like, eh, well, maybe it happened to you. But, you know, it was a long time ago. What are you going to do? But really, women, what you really should be concerned about are your sons. News. 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 New York City. F-A-Q. F-A-Q.